Mr. Wallace, uh, someone was, was, was speculating on just how comfortable you look at this very moment. <laughs> and, and I was wondering, um, is this the sort of thing that you would ever go and do of an evening, go out and hear a writer talk about his work? Well? <laughs> and if so, what, what sort of writer would, would lure you out of your lair? He, he's playing off some stuff that we were talking about in the green room. I, there, there's a part of me that doesn't get this in a very nice way, but I have, I have, friends, I have friends who would not cross the street to hear me <laughs> converse about some stuff. I had, I had mentioned to David that one of the few writers that I thought I would probably actually get in the car and go listen to would be Don DeLillo, but, but then... Um, then it occurred to me, I don't know how it is for other people, when I, when I really like a writer, I, I sort of, there's, a, there's a voice of that writer in my head, and a couple of times that I've heard actual living writers I admired speak, it kind of messed me up, because I like having that page voice in my head, and then the real writer is, you know, phlegmy or lisps, or does all those kind of human things, and it just, and it, it, it ends up kind of being a distraction. Do you write with an eye toward creating a voice in your readers' heads that, that in, in the same way that, that it sounds as if you expect writers to, to do for you? I think probably... That's a cunning question. I, I, I think probably most people who write seriously write in order to create in other people the effects that they treasure in themselves when they read. So to an extent, yes. At the same time... For instance, when I found out what this venue was going to be, part of me was consumed with dread, and the other part of me was kind of relieved because reading out loud for me, I realized every single time that the stuff I do isn't really meant to be read out loud. Um, it doesn't really conform to the breath very well. So I think there... Well, all right, yes. And, <laughs> but it's not... Now they... <laughs> That's certainly appreciated. Um, it's, it's not just a matter of length. I think it has to do with, um, with, with a certain sort of headlong, kind of anxious quality that, that without the need for breathing or, or syllabization or anything like that, lives a lot better on the page than it does out, outside. Um, I, I think when, I, when, I, when I'm writing sentences, the, the biggest thing I'm trying to do is make it kind of, particularly because a lot of the stuff that I do is, is hard, like it's hard to read. Um, is is to make it intimate somehow, so the reader sounds like like somebody's sort of talking to him, although that makes no sense because I just mentioned that it doesn't work out loud. So, well, I think I know what you mean. This is a chilling example of what this is going to be like. <laughs> well, no, there's a certain quality I get when I'm reading you, as if as if you're writing at the very speed of thought, as if I'm sort of following you, following a thought in motion. And I, I wonder, do you write quickly? Do you do you write? I mean, if you say it's hard to read, is it hard to write as you do? The fact of the matter is, is, is no. I don't write quickly at all, and the stuff goes through draft after draft after draft. Although I know when it gets to a point where it sounds real to me, um, part, of the, part of the realness of it has to do with speed and being a, a little bit of a control freak about how the reader, how fast the reader's reading stuff, wanting some stuff to be read fairly slowly and to have a kind of echoey resonance to it and other stuff to seem breathless and headlong and kind of speedy. And what techniques do you use to make a reader read slower or faster? I think I, I, probably the easiest one is just how long the sentences are. Like if you can have a sentence that's kind of a run-on, but you can do the grammar of it such that the reader never gets lost but also never really quite gets to stop, then you get that kind of breathless 
quality. The trick with that is you can do a little bit of that, um, and at least for me, it's cool. You do too much of it, and the reader gets fatigued and kind of pissed off. And so there, there's, a, there's a certain matter of varying, varying speeds. I don't know. There's, people talk about the metrics of poetry a whole lot, and there's no language for this as far as I know. I, I don't know how people, how people talk about the complexity and kind of in terms of the physics of reading, the rapidity with which you read and process sentences. Do you find that prose is metrical too? I mean, do you, do you think in terms of stress and lack of stress or, you know, ending with hard K sounds or, or I mean, are you, are you writing, well, I guess that would suggest that you're writing as if you want to be read aloud and you're just on record as well. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. The, the, we can assume that a certain percentage probably of the people here also write. You know, when you're writing stuff, you get to a point it just sounds right. And I think some of the way it sounds right is there's a certain drumbeat to mm -hmm. it. But I don't think, I don't know very much about writing poetry, but I think poets are far more intentional in terms of like the, the thinking metrically about that stuff. At least in my experience with fiction, it's much more just kind of does it, does it sound okay? How old were you when you wrote your last poem? <laughs> I won $50 in seventh grade for a poem that, um, a four page, uh, a, B, A, B poem about a polluted creek in my hometown and uh, <laughs> chilling. I, I can still remember huge parts of it. It's really awful um, and got to read it on television uh, on a break during the early show. And, uh, anyway, the point is, uh, that's the last name. That's the, people somewhere probably are not audience. interested in hearing No, no, no. That. Somewhere in the audience, there's somebody who's tracking down that kinescope tomorrow. Uh, yeah, it would have been into like 72, 73, oh, Champaign, so Illinois. Yeah. Champaign, Illinois, yeah. the early I, I, I wouldn't be looking for any kind of early promises. Someone anything. could probably make more than 50 bucks just like trying to uh, promise the key. The amount that wraps. I would give them, yes, yes. in order not to. <laughs> yeah, that's food for thought. Um, another thing that occurred to me about the occasional longish sentence that people come across in, in your work is that we... <laughs> Um, you, you, I, I, you're, you're very aware of um, us as living in a media culture, besieged with lots of messages and, and, and you know, bits of information. And could it be that a long sentence is a way of keeping at bay distractions? You can't very well say, oh, honey, I'll, I'll be with you in a minute, just let me finish this sentence, if the sentence has another, you know, several hundred words to go. Um, is, that, is, that, is there any deliberation involved in, in that conceivably? Or? The sexy thing to say would be yes. Mm. The, see, here's what's weird about a, a forum like this, and we talked about this a few days ago down in L.A., is um, you do something, and, it, and, and a year after you're completely sick of it is when you go around and you talk about it. And I could say, it, you know what, that sounds really plausible to me, and we, and we could riff about that a certain amount. The, 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 the fact of the matter is that writing it Writing the stuff for me is so much less sophisticated and primitive. Um, so much of it goes by ear or 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 stomach, and and I think I, I think the, I think to the extent that I'm interested in like attention and fragmentation, it has way more to do with the way things are structured or not structured or divided up or um, ha having different facets. The sentence thing I think has a whole lot to do with the fact that um, like a lot of people. This sounds kind of gooey, but it's really true. Like a lot of people who write, I started reading very young, and one of the reasons that I started reading very young is that for whatever reason, I was lonely. And that one of the things that I went to books for was a, was a, was a relationship. Now, a weird kind. I never really thought I was talking to a person, but there was the sense of an intelligence there or another human thing that I was communing with. And I think a lot of the stuff with the sentences 
I always, like, I'll grin and, like, uh, when people laugh about the long sentence thing. I don't think, um, in some sense, I don't really get it because, um, yeah, I've got some long sentences, but I think it's mostly, I don't know about anybody else, the, the way that I think, I don't think in sentences. And, and what are you some, thinking? Well, I don't, I mean, probably some kind of not as good Joycean mm-hmm. tumble, right? I'm not, I'm, I don't think I'm very interested in reproducing the form of that the way like stream of consciousness does, but I think, I think at least for me, I'm interested in, I'm interested in, in trying to induce the feeling of that a little bit, mm-hmm. at least sometimes. And that, um, to, the, truth be told, when, people, when, he, when the thing about long sentences gets a big laugh, what it makes me think of is that I've screwed up. Because if the grammar of the sentence is okay, if the sentence is structured right, really the reader shouldn't even notice that it's a really long sentence. Um, and so, you know, probably to some extent, I, I'm just not doing it quite as well as I could. But it's not meant to be a stylistic thing, and I don't think I have any kind of cognitive program about it or anything. Um, you, you mentioned uh, your books being a, a companion of sorts to you as a, as a lonely kid. Do you think about, do you think you have a, a, a reader? But not any lonelier than anybody else. No, right? one. Okay. No. 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 <laughs> I mean, um, do you have a reader in mind out there somewhere, a lonely kid perhaps, or no? You know, it's really strange that it's impossible to answer in a way that's going to make much sense. The answer is really both yes and no. The stuff that, that I do, that I really feel when I'm doing it, that I'm enjoying it and it's alive and it's urgent, there both is a feeling that I'm communicating with somebody or something and absolutely no ideas about who or what that person is. It just feels, I guess, to me, the big difference is the difference between something that's a communication and something that's just, you know, exposition or something like that. And if somebody said that, I, don't, I wouldn't have any idea what they were talking about. So. You mentioned um, looking back on something that you'd written a year ago because it takes that long just to make it into print and, and you know, feeling somewhat estranged from it. Do you look back on your, your earliest published work and think, um, oh, God, how am I? Do you despair of topping it or do you cringe and, and, and think of it as juvenilia? Well, uh. <laughs> you're leaving me two options, neither of which is very nice. You're, considering so. your last question was answered both yes and no, I, I, I don't really feel fear excluded mills. I, it depends, I think it depends how far back you, you talk about going. Um, I don't normally go back and look at stuff once it's done, because, like, what's the point? You know, all you, all you do is notice typos, you know, or something that you could... Um, when I do go back and look, there are usually parts I really like, mm-hmm. and then other parts where I just, you know, that full body wince. Um, I don't... Um, but I certainly don't think... I, I, I think I'm somewhat old school in, in that I, I tend to think about one thing and look at one thing for long periods of time, and I just don't really think about past stuff very much. I've been it's going around... Minute. I'm sorry? I'm muttering. It's fine. <laughs> I've been going around telling people that as, not only the new collection, but the, the story in the new collection, Good Old Neon, is mind-blowing and amazing, and that's where they should start. Really? Yeah. Um, and I wonder, um, is there some place you would encourage people new to your work to get the hang of you before, I don't know, hitting the harder stuff, as it were? Do you have... Do you think your work should be read in the order in which it was published, or, or backwards, or...? Um, I, the, the, the thing that people say is funniest and that they most, in, most enjoy is the, is the essay about the cruise ship. Yeah. Um, and the, there you go. And, which was not much fun to do. Um, 
and the, thing, the, 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 the single thing I like best is a story called Little Expressionless Animals that was it's in a book of short stories that I did like in the late 20s about Jeopardy. Um, that's my, it, when people say, what should I read? That's the one that I show that people, here, read this, read this. It's really good. That's in... Oh, how nice of you to hold the book up. Well, I want to um, make sure it's the right one before yeah, I hold with, it all the way up. Yeah, 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 yeah go with, with Curious Hair. Which is literally juvenilia. So. Um, you mentioned your nonfiction, and certainly a whole lot of people, myself included, adore your nonfiction. Either I'm looking in the wrong places or I haven't seen much of it lately. Um, are you taking some time off from that? Uh, I, do, I, tend to do, I tend to do one of those pieces um, every year or so. I don't really think of myself very much as a nonfiction writer. I started out doing it because I was really, really, really poor in the early <laughs> 90s. It's, really, it's the truth. And this guy, Colin Harrison at Harper's, threw me some jobs. And uh, I, um, then there was the pesky matter of this, of this, of this book of, of stories that I'd signed a contract for and kind of had to then, to then to work on. I've got something coming out in a magazine that I won't even say what it is in a couple months, and I'm supposed to do another piece of nonfiction like later this year, but, you know, who knows? So. Have you signed any other book contracts that might result in material I've, that we can keep an eye out for? Mm -hmm. uh, no, I, I, I think at some point there's going to be a book of nonfiction when there's enough stuff, but after that, who knows? This may be it. This may, I may be all done. It's what I say after every book. Well, I hope you say it after I, many more. Um, I wonder, do you, I mean, here's a whole lot of people whose number I won't invoke because it might make you less comfortable instead of more, but I mean, here's a whole lot of people to whom your work obviously means something. Do you think we're in a good moment for the reading of, of, of ambitious writing right now or not? This, this, was, this was what caused trouble in L.A. Um, my, my personal opinion, first of all, dying doesn't mean has no viability, has no interest. Uh, my personal opinion is that literary fiction is sort of like poetry, dying a little bit as a cultural force, mainly just because um, everything from movies to television to the Internet is so changing the way people apportion their attention aesthetically, that the kind of deep sit in a totally quiet room, immerse yourself in one thing for a long period of time, is quickly, is gonna become very alien to almost everybody except those who have a whole, whole, whole lot of training in it, which you usually get at like a hard-ass college. And so, um, no, I mean, I think demographically, commercially, um, it's not a very good time for it, but I think it's, I mean, that doesn't mean it's not a good time for it artistically. Does that make any sense? It makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and this is, uh, people got very upset about this answer a few days ago. So um, I don't mean dying in terms of it's worthless or it's no longer relevant or anything like that. I just think every year fewer and fewer people are interested in it. Speaking of hard-ass colleges, you, you teach in one. Um, and I wonder, your, your writing seems so much your own and nobody else's. I wonder, are you a good teacher? How do you go about, I mean, do you do your students try to write like you, and do you have to spank them and say, no, don't do that? Make these sentences longer. Yes. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does it come naturally to you? Um, I'm not a great teacher. I'm pretty good. Um, I started doing it in grad school. Actually, I really like it, um, mainly because it sounds like a bromide, but I learn, more, I learn more in every single class than the students do, partly because having to articulate something mm -hmm. to somebody who doesn't necessarily get it right away is the best exercise in the world for... My personal, this whole creative writing, teaching thing 
my opinion is that how good a teacher you are has very little to do with how good a writer you are. It has, it has a lot to do with how good a reader you are and how, how much, how well you're able to read the student and, and sort of how to handle the student. Um, um, so not how good a reader you are of literature, but how good a reader you are of people. Well, th this is going to sound really nasty, but when you're teaching undergrads, they're not generating literature. Most of them are coming out of a high school experience where they're taught a model of writing that's fundamentally expressive. That is, this is we want you to write, therefore anything you do is good. This is good because you did it. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm are making you... it sound cruder than it is, but it's a big problem, as, even with especially actually with bright undergraduates, is shifting them from a, from a mode of, of expressive writing where it's good just because, where every reader's your mom, right? Yeah. <laughs> to communicative writing where you assume this, this is a busy adult with, with her own interests and her own time commitments. How are you going to make it worth it, you know, for, for this person to read your stuff? You can start talking about that as early as you can freshman comp. Um, and my experience is it is a heavy head trip student. It to students is actually the terror of suddenly realizing that, you know what, it's not good just because I did it. And the reader isn't necessarily automatically interested in what I'm interested in. And how, in fact, am I going to make this interesting? It, it's actually, as a discipline, it's really, really, really interesting. Did you have a teacher who broke that news to you at some point in college or any other time? Yeah, that's, you know, that, that's a really good... My, my mom, well, both my parents are academics, and my mom taught lit classes, and mom was a very tough reader of my stuff all the way back in high school. Um, I had the typical 80s experience of coming into a good school and being Mr. Hot You-Know-What in high school and then getting, you know, the C's and the D's and whatever. I didn't have teachers who wrote a lot of, who wrote a lot of stuff on my papers, but I did have teachers who would let me come in to their offices and once, you know, I was done having my hysterics, they would kind of explain to me that, you know, we maybe don't need two pages on this one tiny small, this is boring to another person. Never occurred to me. Well, all right, there's a certain irony. If you... <laughs> <laughs> well, I was wondering about that. I mean, part of what a teacher of undergraduates must have to say to his students is don't be self-conscious like that if you can help it. And self-consciousness is not only... Uh, to some extent, a habit of yours, but a theme of yours, a subject of yours. I don't know that, I don't know that, that, that there's anything wrong with self-consciousness. The, the, the trick with students is to make them realize that their, the consciousness they're conscious of is simultaneously less and more interesting than they think it is, <laughs> right? The two lethal kinds of students are the paralyzed ones who think anything they could have thought up has no interest to anybody else, and then there's the other side who thinks that the very fact that they had it um, they are literally unable to imagine a reader not being as entranced with their stuff as they are. And, and uh, you know what, both types of students, some of whom make good writers after a few years, require a very delicate kind of combination of bedside manner and boot in the ass. Which kind were you? It's a really good... I was a weird blend of both and continue to be, <laughs> I think. Um... A critic I like, Lauren Miller, um, has a piece about you in uh, the Salon Guide to Contemporary Literature where she, she um, calls you a noticing machine because, you know, you're very aware of the minutest particulars of a lot of scenes that you write, not just who's in it but where they are. And, and I just wonder, is this, is this something that you consciously have to turn on when you're writing a scene or is this something you couldn't turn off if you tried? I don't... 
See, that's feel free the, to you know. Uh, I don't contest it, the uh, the description. It's it's it's. One, we were talking about this too in the green. This is one of those questions that's fascinating. I don't know how to answer it because I don't know what anybody else's noticing machine is like. You know, I do know that it's been pointed out to me that I'm really good at noticing visual stuff and sometimes yeah. sound stuff. I'm not very good at noticing tastes and smells. And I've had people say, "Have you noticed that there's like three mentions of food in your entire thing?" So that I I just think I have my particular. I, I have my particular wiring. I know that one of the things that's very, very hard for me about nonfiction is that there's just so much freaking real stuff in any scene, whereas in fiction, you're really pulling it, pulling it out of nothing, and you choose how much stuff is there. So. But you're not choosing among a pre-existing array of... Yeah. Not, not unless I'm deeply out of touch with what's really... <laughs> when you go from draft to draft, do you find the the work getting progressively simpler or progressively more complex? It, it, differs, piece, it differs piece by piece. Um, I, I, I just have a very mechanistic routine that I go through, and um, as I go through it, some pieces get longer, some get shorter, some get more involved, some get less involved. Mm -hmm. Some quit breathing, turn blue, and go in a trunk. Yeah. So. It, never to return? or I have, I have lots of trunks. But, not a trunk never, and not a fireplace, Never right? to return because a lot of the stuff just isn't very good. You know? I mean, it's just... Uh, Do you ever worry that you have your aesthetics backwards and the stuff you're putting in the trunk is better than the stuff you're publishing? Or you're, you're more confident than that at this point? Or perhaps I shouldn't have broached well, the a lot of the stuff... I don't know how it is for other people. A lot of stuff that goes in the trunk is stuff I so know that it's stopped breathing and turned blue that I don't finish it. Mm. You know? Sometimes it just almost kind of stops in mid-sentence. It's, no, I don't worry about that very much. I worry, of course, that stuff that's been put out there really ought to have gone in the trunk, <laughs> but rarely the other way around. So. Do you have any stupid self-imposed writing rules that you, know, you wish you'd maybe even never heard or, or developed, but you're a prisoner of them? You write for a living. What, what, would you, what would you say in answer to that question? I would say I wish nobody had ever told me that the passive voice or the linking verb is bad. Because I know why they say that, and at a certain level I agree with it, but it, knowing that isn't worth the knots I tie myself up in trying to avoid it. Yeah. Well, you could say, yeah, most of the rules, I would say, no, and this is one way that being a teacher helps, is that these sorts of rules, you know, don't, don't split an infinitive wide, you know, all that kind of, you know, from the most Neanderthal to, the, these are guidelines, and one of the tricky things with students is up to a certain point, you tell them those rules and it makes their writing better, mm -hmm. but if they, if they let those rules become a cage, then, then it really starts hurting them. And so you sort of, I think, have to know kind of when to abide by them and, and, and when not. The thing with fiction, though, is particularly if you've got a voice that's a human being, human being, often the way characters deviate from certain rules or at least guidelines is part of their character or at least the texture of their thoughts. So then it gets really weird. Then you're choosing kind of which rules to flout. And if you're flouting them in certain places, then you've got to flout them elsewhere. And copy editors just kick your ass about it because they'll find inconsistencies. You're listening to David Foster Wallace in conversation with David Kippen. This is City Arts and Lectures. Do you have to do a whole lot of log rolling with copy editors in, even now in the publishing process, or do they pretty much give you your head? Um, the, I've, I've had... Magazine ones I tend to have a harder time with because magazines have house styles. Mm -hmm. And for instance, there will be a comma between two independent clauses, and, and sometimes things then... <laughs> 
sometimes things then can get ugly. Having been, <laughs> having been with the same editor in the same house um, for, for a few books now, I mean, right now, I've, the, the copy editor for, for Oblivion made the book better, which is, from a writer's perspective, that's like a dream copy editor. Can you give an example of, of a query that improved the text? Oh, yeah. Here you didn't use a comma, and then four pages later in the identical situation you did. Is this intentional, or is this a screw-up? Which, that's the big thing, the diplomatic query. You know, not just the red pen, like, <laughs> changing it around, yeah. which just, ugh. Um, <laughs> but the query. And really, when you do eccentric stuff, and you're messing around with all these rules that nobody cares about but you, the big thing is just consistency, and there's certain stuff you can't see. And she found clunkaroos, you know, sentences that are just kind of dead. Or they're, you know, you've, you're repeating the same word in three consecutive sentences and you weren't aware of it. Yeah, it's not very sexy, but it's, you appreciate it when somebody finds this stuff for you. Hmm. Other than critics. <laughs> <laughs> like, like before the thing comes out. And, so. Can we talk about endings for a minute? Um, like, what's an ending that you love? What, what, end, what are you after uh, when, you, when you try and bring something to a rounded close. I mean, because it occurs to me that, I mean, I find at least two specific kinds of endings in your work. There's, there's, the, um, there's the end of, of, the, of the Suffering Channel, the last story in Oblivion, where you're sort of, end, you're sort of ending on a note of suspense, where what's about to happen um, is, is, is maybe as significant as what is happening at that particular moment. And then there's the ending of, of the aforementioned good old neon, which... I get vertigo just thinking about it. Flies up its own bottom, kind of. Yeah. If you will. In a very cool way. I mean, do you, are, you, are you the sort of writer who, who, who starts with an end in view, or does it take shape as you, as you go along? I mean, I realize these, realize these are hard no, it's things a good, to talk it's about. No, it's a good sign of whether something's alive or not, that if two-thirds of the way through you don't have a fairly good idea of of how it's going to end, not just plot-wise, but in terms of pitch, mm -hmm. then the chances are the thing's dead. I know, um, I know, one, I know that I don't, um, to, to some extent, I think I'm like a lot of other people my age, is I've grown up, I've grown up with so much narrative, and so much of it is televised and, and cinematic and, and, you know, and commercial. And there's nothing wrong with commercial, but it tends to be very tight. You know, Freitag's triangle thing. And the, I don't know. What is that? Oh, what is that? Did anybody know? This, it's, it, it looks like a triangle with kind of a little, well, erection at the end of it. <laughs> and it, uh, uh, you start out with exposition, then you've got your rising action, then you've yeah. got your first, first complication, then you've got your climax, and then there is something kind of prurient about the whole thing, and then you've got your denouement. <laughs> Um, that, that it's this, it, you know, somebody applied it to Greek tragedy. I, 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 guess, I guess my point is there's a lot of, con, I'd say, conventional plot stuff in terms of the, the movement of that stuff that's been a little bit ruined for me because I've seen it so much and a, a whole lot of it is somewhat packaged mm -hmm. that I think one of the things that I like, I, one of the things that's in my stomach is that I don't, I don't like the stuff I'm doing to end the way things things that are mainly commercial have ended, which, which is not very sophisticated. Really, it's just recoiling in the other direction from, from something. But I know, I know that one of the reasons I have weird endings is that, is that your tight, good, you know, uh, um, 
meaningful climax with the big incident that the whole thing's been leading up to, and we see that incident and their implications, and then at the end, everybody's having dinner together and laughing. You know, the Quinn Martin production <laughs> arc <laughs> has just been, has been ruined for me um, just because, I've, just because I've, I've experienced too much of it as a recipient. So is that, is that halfway interesting? Oh, yeah. Okay. Does, it, does it make it hard for you to watch television or movies at this point, or it's just your own, in your own work where you can't abide? I don't watch that much TV. Well, TV is very different now. Like, what did we watch the other Venom ER? I mean, the, the TV I'm talking about is the TV that I, mean, that I watched up till about my 30s, which was what, much more of these dramas. TV now is, you know, that stuff in a blunder. Um, but, you know, there's a part of me, um, I don't like it when I read, but I'm happy to sit in a movie theater in front of a big, lush, hoary corporate entertainment and just be immersed by the... And I, I kind of know what's going to happen, and I know how long the car chase is going to be, and I know the villain's going to take his five minutes to gloat before he pulls the trigger and so be able to be killed. And for some reason, for some reason... And I have smart friends who don't like that. But it, when I'm sitting passive looking at a screen, I don't mind that. But when I'm reading, I do. It just makes my stomach hurt. It feels false to me. Why that is is probably something psychological about me that's not very interesting. Another thing I noticed from story to story is your fondness for, for what I guess we'd call a cinematic technique, which is namely cross-cutting. Oftentimes, you'll set up two discrete either physical areas or two discrete characters and have them converge toward the end. Is that, is that something that you're mindful of? Um, or, I mean, I'm thinking of certainly Infinite Jest where you've got the Tennis Academy and then down the sure. road you've got the, the... When you say that, the person I think of most is Rick Powers, all of whose books have this binary structure and they move to... I know I like cross-cutting in different characters only because part of it is I think the TV thing is... I so acculturated to think of the main character as me and, and all you've got is this one main character and everybody else is kind of a figurant or a secondary that I, I like it far more to have different things happening at the same time and have sort of communities in the piece rather than, rather than just one main character. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's aesthetic. Again, I think that's some weird psychological thing. It's just yummier to me. I, I like reading the, that kind of stuff better and I like writing it better. I'm glad you brought up character because I think it's something you don't get enough credit for. I mean, you, you mentioned, um, <laughs> for the benefit of radio listeners, the, uh, the interviewee is sitting up straight and looking rather pleased himself. He's pretty okay. <laughs> but I mean, um, your, your characters are not mouthpieces for you. Um, uh, and I wonder how you slip into them. Some, there are people who suggest that they are mouthpieces for me. Well, no one that I would give the time of day to, but... <laughs> no, no, I, uh, um, no I, I wouldn't say that. I, I would say more that, that um, one thing I really appreciate about your work is that, you know, there are multiple discrete characters in them, none of whom seem to preempt the others. I mean, you seem to give uh, subsidiary characters their, their due rather than... The only, the, the only honest thing I can think of to say is that, um, is that, is that the character thing is, is another good sign of whether something's alive or not. There is, and again, it sounds kind of woo-woo. Um, if, 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 if the thing 
that you're working on starts to come to life, the big symptom of that is that the characters start to come to life and you're no longer kind of having to try to imagine what they would think or what they would say. And there are times where at least some of them begin to seem like they start talking and that you're more, you're more, and it doesn't happen to me very often. And I think there are some writers who every single thing they do is this kind of mystical, well, people who do very, 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 very character-based stuff. You know, I, I, it's hard to imagine Alice Monroe not hearing, you know, what the characters are saying. They don't, my, my characters to me, it, it, except for a few, always seem a little contrived, but that's because I remember contriving them. Mm. Right? So. Do you, I mean, do you feel, do you feel inferior to Alice Monroe because you, you admire this, this, this trait of hers, or do you feel like you're, you, 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 um, you, you go ahead. I mean, are there, are there, are there writers who demoralize well, you? Well, see, no, the powers? short answer is yes, but then that's not very interesting. That, here's another interesting thing about teaching, is that, is that, uh, is that when I was a student, uh, like in the early 80s, especially in grad school, there was, there was this big split between your capital R realism with a huge emphasis on character, right? Mm -hmm. 3D characters. And then there was your more experimental avant-garde, stuff that came out of Gaddis and Pynchon and all those. And there were those of us who were really into the experimental camp, and the, the profs in grad school really didn't like us because they were all from the realistic character camp. And the big thing they would keep saying is, you know, this is mildly interesting, but it seems clever in front of the head to me. It's not, right, I get it, but I'm not fully, fully engaged um, because you don't really have full, believable characters. And, uh, you know, over beers afterwards, a lot of us would agree on how benighted and behind the times they were and talk about. The older one gets, I now find myself saying, I, I will have very, very smart students who can set up terrific little clever scenarios. And I will say to them and mean it, this is really clever and cool. It's lacking a certain urgency or authenticity that for me would exist if I gave a flaming damn about any of these characters, if any of them seemed even remotely human to me. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, becoming your dad or whatever. But I also think <laughs> that as I've gotten older, one of the things I've been able to see is that some of the quote-unquote postmodernists, you know, from really Nabokov on down, one of the reasons that they're magical and that they're giants is that they're not only doing really smart, cool stuff, they've actually got characters who are, who are, who are absolutely alive in 3D and, and in whom I'm able to invest emotion without any of the regular tricks, and they are tricks of, of classic realism. That is, and probably everybody else knew this, but it didn't occur to me for a long time that that postmodernism wasn't cool because it was like, oh, look, here are all these games we can play. It's like, look, here are certain games we can play that are actually going to do the most fatal thing. It's going to remind you that you're reading words on a page, and we can still knock your damn socks off, right? We can still have you cry at the end or feel suspense or whatever. It, it would be v embarrassing to admit to you how old I was before I finally kind of got that. Right? So, there is, though I will never do anything even remotely like what Alice Monroe does, there is a part of me that, that looks with dropped jaw at somebody who has the ability uh, in a few pages to sketch a character that I can almost, you know, I can smell her perfume. You know? It seems to me an absolute kind of magic. So, that's, that's the longer version of yes, I feel inferior. <laughs> as, you, as you experience the process of gradually becoming your dad, um, do you find your work changing under you? Not really. Hmm? Um, I, 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 think, I think the stuff that I, end, that I keep working on seems more to me now to be um, uh, 
to be moving to me rather than funny. I, I think, um, and I don't know that the two are incompatible, but I know that at least the first couple of books, the primary thing was, can I make myself laugh so hard that I fall out of the chair? And, uh, and though I still appreciate that, I, I, um, the stories that really kind of engage me now and that I end up putting through all the drafts are usually ones that, they're not, they're not sad in a boo-hoo reach for the Kleenex way, but they seem, they seem, they seem a little sadder to me. Would, don't you also find that a lot of times with a writer who is um, unmistakably smart and or funny, that there's an assumption that they may be to some degree, I don't know, cold, heartless, all the stupid adjectives everybody always throws at Kubrick, that pre-exists whether or not they are emotional or not. I mean, it, it, don't you find that, that, that people sometimes assume that if you're smart, you can't? Uh, write a sad book, or that if you are, you know, if you can put a reader on the floor with helpless, crippling laughter, that you can't possibly um, know how to move a reader. I don't. For me, mostly as a, I, I think mostly as a reader, I don't know that it has too much to do with smarts or funniness. It has to do with technique. People who are, I mean, Kubrick's a fantastic technician. The problem with which is good, and I, you know, probably I would say if there's one thing, I think I'm a good technician. The problem with, with the problem with technique is that it calls attention to itself, and whatever calls attention to itself is going to assume is going to assume the most weight in the piece, right? And so my fantasy would be to be able to have something that's utterly overt and heavy about technique, but also um, has has the same emotional punch as like classical art realism. Right? Where a lot of the techniques in realism are really meant to make technique covert and create the illusion that this is some kind of window onto something real. Right? That to me, again, I think more from just growing up with a lot of TV, it doesn't feel cool to me. It doesn't feel urgent or like it's worth, worth my time doing. On the other hand, doing stuff where there's a lot of investment in technique does make it harder. It, it will not, the reader's only got a finite amount of attention, right? And if the technique is calling to itself, that's less attention to pay to the characters, their plight, the way in which the characters are like you, the resonances you have for them. And so in a, in, it's a little bit of a math problem. The perfect thing would be both technically brilliant and would also just, I mean, it would be so sad it would make you jump off a bridge, right? That would be the perfect thing, but that's a star that you steer by. It's not, not necessarily leap, uh, kill you or something, but I just, but, well, but would have both a full, like, intellectual aesthetic and an absolutely full um, emotional effect. This is a vaguely dumb question, but um, when you say a full emotional effect, you were just talking about sadness. Is there a presumption there that sadness is somehow fuller than a different or opposite emotional yeah. effect? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I, it seems to me at 42 that the older one gets, the more autumnal one gets and that that what gives a lot of emotions its resonance is a sense of finitude and a kind of bittersweetness and it's actually quite beautiful but it also may be that I'm just kind of sick and need some sort of medication and that in fact <laughs> joy and dancing and lightheartedness is the real thing informing all of that I, I'm, I th I'm probably looking forward to my 50s <laughs> well I could I could certainly talk to you all day, but I bet there's other people who are, are uh, nice waiting for the chance. <laughs> you just complimented me on a question. You think I'm going to risk another question after that? Not You've a got problem. another thing. It's not a problem. Um, 
this uh, young woman is uh, moving to the center of the auditorium with a microphone, which I would encourage those of you with questions for Mr. Wallace to line up behind and, uh, and have at it. And perhaps in the meantime, as we wait for people to materialize... Questions for Mr. Kippen are welcome, too, and we can all listen to the, <laughs> all listen to the answers. Hello, hello. Yes, sir. Am I on? Cool. Um, so my question is not really about writing so much, but I saw that you had had a part in this book called Signifying Rapper about hip-hop, and I want to know if you're a fan of hip-hop, and if so, what hip-hop you listen to. Now? Yeah, now, now. I was just in a car with, with four other people, all of whom are so much more conversant with the hip-hop scene than I. That book was written in, like, 89, and my roommate and I were listening to huge amounts of Public Enemy, NWA, De La Soul, and Schooly D. All, these are still hip? That was a hip thing, I said? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think because, these people are hip? Well, those because are my, classics, sense, my sense is that these are, these are um, that they've long since, I mean... My editor had to explain to me that Dr. Dre had actually gone on to be. I think there was this complete immersion for about six months, and then we, oh, and then it was in copy editing, and I went back to listening to the Carpenters. <laughs> so, you, so you don't listen to any, any new hip-hop that's come out hasn't caught your ear at all? I'm sorry? Nothing new that's come out has caught you at all? It, it really depends what you call hip-hop. I, I had always sort of sneered at Eminem, right. and then somebody actually played an Eminem album for me, I was like, my God, this stuff's really good. I, I, <laughs> who would have thought that the dinner table thing would come? I essentially listened to the same music I listened to in 1984. Like, like um, I'm not very sophisticated about it. There are certain things I like, and, and no, I won't mention a single title um, <laughs> that I just listened to over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm sorry, I'm sure that's disappointing. Do you write? No, that's fine. I'm sorry? Do you write with music on? No. No. I um, do, however, edit with music on. You do what? I edit with music on. Really? Yeah. Anything in particular? With words or without? No. <laughs> Can we have another question? Hi. Um, what do you think of Pomona College? Could we narrow that a bit? <laughs> um, I, I, no, I was trying to make it as simple as possible, but, um, but I'm very curious. I attended Pomona, and so I wanted to know um, how you feel about it. The... Pomona is a little, small liberal arts college in Claremont. It's one of these five Claremont colleges. I'm trying to figure out a way to answer this where it's of marginal interest to people other than you and me. Um, I, I went to a school in Massachusetts that, it w that was a lot like that. And like, really good faculty, high faculty-student ratio, unbelievably expensive. Um, and uh, it was a very good school. Um, it was very intense, and people were very uptight. One of the things that I'm most amazed, the kids at Pomona are really smart. They also seem, unless somebody's running a huge, you know, they're keeping all the people like me locked up in a closet, they seem reasonably happy and well-adjusted and to have their priorities in order and like to have a social life outside studies and to be very, very, very aware that there's a world outside Claremont and a lot of stuff that I just didn't have when I was in college. So for the most part, with the exception of, you know, one or two students, and there's a couple all the time who, you know, you want to beat to death. Um, I, I, I like them very much and would actually recommend the, the family friends who have kids coming up on college age. I've become like a little booster. You know, I wear a little sweatshirt and stuff. It's quite something. <laughs> we have another question. Hi. Uh, 
you were talking earlier about how you jump into your writing routine or your editing routine when you go through your drafts, and I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit, what you go through. Can I just ask why? Why, why are you interested? Well, of course. I finished something, and I want to, you know, I'm working on the draft of my big first novel, and I just kind of wanted to hear what you do. You're not going to be interested in this. Try I do me. the first draft longhand. The second draft, I rewrite longhand on a clipboard. Then I type it once. Then I retype it. Then it sits for at least a week or two, and I, and I redo it, and then I type it again. And not computer retyping, but starting all the way at the beginning and totally retyping it off hard copy. Why, you ask? Good question. Um, <laughs> This, this was a routine that one of the things about my college or the classes I took, you just had to write your ass all the time. You were writing all the time, and this was my little, this was my little way for doing it. Um, I don't think people who grew up with computers can do that because computers, you play with the text instead of starting all over. On a typewriter, you really do have to start all over again. And for me, I have to do it like that because otherwise I, I'm so scared for the first couple drafts. Like if I think they have to be anywhere close to as good as the last draft, I get so scared and full of that kind of narcissistic terror that I can't do it. So I end up trading a lot of drudgery time for the freedom to kind of be crummy in the first couple drafts. But I'm aided by my, I went, I honed my little neurotic routine in the years literally before computers became ubiquitous. I was like the last two or three years when people had typewriters instead of PCs in their college room. So it will be of no help to you. Thanks anyway. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Since um, we've talked, uh, you've talked about a bunch about reading. I was wondering how, whether you at all suffer from anxiety of influence of pe things you read. So can you explain a little bit what you mean by? Well, just whether you worry about things that you like and things that catch your ear and that strike you crawling into your own writing. Yeah, but what's wrong with that? Well, you know, there's. There's, there's nothing per se wrong with it, but it, it is something that a lot of times, you know, you, you try to, people try to avoid or, or at least not make it, or at least consciously block it. I mean, Cormac McCarthy's got this thing, books are made out of other books. Mm -hmm. I think what you're talking about is doing it and having it look like you're doing it. For instance, I know I, I started doing this fairly late in college, and the first, actually my first trunk, the, 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 the lining of my first trunk is five pieces that are just really bad imitations of J.D. Salinger without my being aware that they were imitations of J.D. Salinger. Um, I don't think there's a person alive who doesn't make their books somewhat out of other books and particularly ones they really like. The trick is to do this enough and have enough of kind of your own stuff going on that, that when you're using things, you're transfiguring it and making it your own. You want a pithy thing? It's not what you lift, it's where you carry it. If you don't make it your own, somebody's going to be able to tell you snagged it. Um, whereas I think anything's fair game if it, if it becomes authentically yours. Now, not, you know, an entire text of dialogue from a copyrighted thing, right? In, unless you're Kathy Acker, in which case it's very cool. So. Uh, thank you. Um, another question, uh, one of my favorite pieces of yours is the John McCain story that you did for Rolling Stone during the 2000 campaign. And I'm wondering whether you're doing any or thinking of doing any political writing this season or just what your thoughts are. Um, it seems... <laughs> I mean, the, the central concern, as I remember it, was the sort of the, the hunger for some kind of real honesty in the electorate and straight shooting, and it 
it seems like that kind of went out the rear window. So <laughs> what do you see as the main concerns now as you think about the election campaign? You know what? I'm hesitant to get into this for two reasons. One is I'm a private citizen, right? I mean, I, I don't have any. The other is that um, one of the things for me that's made the journalism of this election cycle both interesting and really upsetting is the level of savagery of it. And I'm not talking about just on one side. Um, my problem is that the way that I feel about the current situation is is so upset and so negative that I know that were I to do something, I would just be one more spittle-spewing person hopping up and down, um, and that right now, for whatever reason, I don't have the balance required to do it. I don't know if that makes... So you're not writing about it? <laughs> not, not for anybody else. <laughs> more like, please, God, please, please, God. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, David. My name's Anton. So a lot of times when I'm finished reading one of your books, I usually check out the rest of it, and I read a lot of the blurbs. And uh, there's one where they talk about, I guess, you reinventing uh, American fiction. And I always wonder, um, I guess, what you think that means, just out of curiosity, because I like your writing, obviously. And, uh, and then the other is, um, do you think it's accurate description of your writing, of you as an author? I, I don't think it's accurate. I think it's very nice, but it's blurb speak. Hmm. And blurb speak is a very special sub-dialect of English that, no, that's partly hyperbole, but it's also phrases that sound really good and are very compelling in an advertorial sense. But if you think about them, they're literally meaningless. Uh, the, the, what, what it would mean to reinvent something. Um, <laughs> so, but... Far preferable to savage, meaningless phrases. Another question. I'm basically up here because I want to hear my voice on the radio later. But just to be quick, since we're at the end, um, do you have anything to say about Joyce since we're at the at the centennial now? How, did he because of Bloomsday? Not necessarily because, but well, what would, if, you if somebody asked you that, what would you, off the top of your head, have to say about Joyce? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not much of a well-known writer, so. But to get back to maybe another question. That you like, am I pro-Joyce? <laughs> <laughs> that was the sound of uh, Mr. Wallace. Yeah, that was thumb. the thumb. That was yeah. the Roger Ebert thumb. <laughs> but perhaps another way of putting the question is, how would you like your readers to celebrate the 100th anniversary of your death? Not that Bloomsday is the 100th anniversary of Mr. Joyce's birth or Isn't death, it, but... It's the 100th anniversary of really when he and Nora kind of knew each other, yes, for the first time? When they, when they, as it were, to put matters delicately, met for the first time. Exactly. <laughs> Where they didn't sleep head to foot once. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, it's very, very difficult. You know, you're in college... And you, you read these guys, right? The, like the immoral guys, like Mann and Kafka and Joyce and stuff. And uh, uh, when you're an adolescent, you have the fantasy that maybe someday, like, you could be like that. When you're really a grown-up and somebody asks you a question like that, the most immediate response is to, that you want to throw up because it's, it would be such a travesty. The idea that, the idea that um, I, th I think of myself as I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a solid part of a community of kind of 
young to middle-aged writers who are doing some fairly interesting stuff in America, but, but, and there's, there are exciting things about the book right now. I don't think there's a single writer right now, probably because the period isn't right for it, who's going to be anything like of the stature of these guys. And, you know, that's, that's, that's just the flat-out truth. So the idea of, um, the idea of anybody celebrating, ce- celebrating any particular, yeah, anyway. So I've said that part. So I'm sorry, that's a lame way to end, but that's the... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, don't make him wait a hundred years. <laughs> David Foster Wallace. <laughs>